You are listening to the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund podcast. The CBLDF podcast is part of our ongoing education program. My name is Alex Cox, and in this episode, we talk to Chuck Polinek, the author of Fight Club, Choke, Lullaby, Haunted, Diary, and many, many other books, including Fight Club 2, which recently came out from Dark Horse Comics, illustrated by Cameron Stewart. We talk a little bit about his comics work, his influences, and his observations on censorship and free speech. I want to thank Chuck for talking to us ahead of time here and make sure I get in at the top of this uh, this audio recording a plug for Fight Club 2, which is a really marvelous piece of work. And uh, for someone who has never written comics before, there's an astonishing level of craft that uh, that's really admirable. So without further introduction, here is Chuck Polinick. Wake up, your wonderful dreams come true. A newborn feeling First, first of all, I want to get your name right, and I'm not sure I know exactly how to pronounce your last name, so if you want to give me that. My family pronounces it as Polonek. Uh-huh. It's a Ukrainian name, and we say a very Americanized version that doesn't pronounce some of the letters, and uh, Ukrainian people are always correcting me. I think that's kind of charming. I like my whole growing up. Everyone was always Mr. or Miss something in school, and I was always Chuck. And at the DMV, <laughs> it's always... Chuck. Where, where did you grow up? I'm not sure that I... Uh, in eastern Washington State. It's pretty desolate. And uh, I grew up near the area where the Manhattan Project was... Uh, uh, oh, wow. ...took place, uh, creating the, uh, the bomb for World War II. It was uh, entirely rural. There were 600 people in my town. Holy cow. And it was an area that was fairly, fairly new because most people had moved there as Okies. Uh, during the Depression to get World War II jobs in the uh, late 30s, early 40s. So pretty much everybody there had come from other parts of the country where their lives had failed. Wow. Was it was it a lot of engineers, or was it mostly just, like, production people? Mostly just blue-collar production people. They really had no idea what they were doing. Uh, they had no idea what radioactivity was. They just had to wear badges that measure their exposure and they didn't know what to do. Uh, it was just very uh, cloak and dagger for these people have ended up with enormous amounts of cancer. Oh my god. It seems like uh, almost everyone in my high school class has come up with some form of cancer. Did most of your schoolmates end up working in the facilities? No, but during their childhood they would have these periodic uh, steam releases from the nuclear reactors that now occupy the site where the bomb was developed and the steam releases were, were contained radioactivity and uh, they precipitated down onto dairy fields so the milk that we drank as children it turns out was very uh, polluted with radioactivity but so many people were exposed to their jobs or through uh, the common use of radioactivity for a lot of things during that time in the 1950s my mother was dosed with massive amounts of radioactivity to clear up her acne. And it used to be a regular procedure. They would take you to the hospital and then dope you with huge amounts of x-rays to kill all the subcutaneous uh, germs in your skin. And it gave you beautiful skin, but then later you got cancer and died about 40 years down the road. Aye, aye, aye. Maybe we should talk about comics now, because this is... 
<laughs> I had no idea. Were you a comic fan at the time? I was growing up. I was born in 62, so for me it was uh, really the late 60s and early 70s. But we always bought our comics used. So I was visiting comics that were already a few years old. Sure. And I was always looking for the the uh, the EC horror comics were my favorites. And those were readily available all over the place, or did you have to hunt them down? No, they were always in a. There was always a big stack of them at this store, and I think we got them for a nickel apiece. Oh wow! And so you could get them and you could trade them at school and. They were just so perfect for reading at night uh, on camping trips. Uh, they still affect what I think of as a good story. Well, they were incredibly tightly plotted um, in a way that a lot of people make fun of, but it's kind of sophisticated when you go back and look at them, how much you know of a plot arc they got into like eight pages. There were four or five stories in every, in every book, in every issue. Yeah, and they all made sense. They all, you know, had a perfect arc. They all, everything was set up. Everything, there was no cheats, really, in the EC books. And they always carried a, a social message, a, a moral or a parable. And so I was surprised that they were so controversial because they always taught you to do something the right way. They were, they were really progressive. I'm sure you remember there's a lot of stories about anti-Semitism and... Um, and, and racism in general. Um, well, I loved them, and, and I miss them. They're, they're really hold up, too. I, I don't know if you've revisited them recently, but um, IDW does those big artist editions where you can see the original art, and they're jaw-dropping how gorgeous some of them are. More recently, uh, I've been looking for the Dark Horse uh, anthologies of the Creepy, uh, creepy and uh, what, what was the uh, Eerie. Guy? Creepy and Eerie anthologies and I've been buying those they're they're kind of expensive but they're exactly the comics that I read yeah they're awesome um, was was doing comics something that was always on your brain no never early on you know years ago when Fight Club was made as a movie uh, we got some some inquiries from Marvel and DC about doing uh, a 14 issue series but at the time you know I was just a beginning writer and I couldn't take the time off to learn a whole new writing skill. So I didn't want a, a chance doing the series and doing it badly and then kind of losing my stride as a novelist. So it wasn't until a couple of years ago when I was invited to dinner with uh, Matt Fraction and, and Kelly Sudaconic and, and Brian Bendis. And they talked to me and they told me how comics worked and they offered to coach me through the, the learning curve. And so that's how it all came together. It was two years ago at dinner. Did you have a story in, in mind at that point? Had, were you thinking that, that you had more to tell in the in the Fight Club world? I really felt like I, I owed my father and fathers in general an enormous blanket apology because Fight Club is such a tirade against fathers. <laughs> kind of blaming fathers for all this information that wasn't passed along. And in the interim, I had read a lot of Joseph Campbell. And according to Joseph Campbell, there is something called the, the interim, the secondary father. And really so much of the blaming that I was doing was skills that I should have gotten from a secondary father, someone, a drill sergeant or a coach or 
or a favorite teacher or somebody along those lines. And so I wanted to write the Fight Club story from the perspective of a father, so that he couldn't blame fathers anymore. I mean, the other interesting thing about it is that it goes really metatextual pretty pretty quickly. Was that always in the planning of it, or was that something that came about in, in the process? Yeah, that was always the case. I wanted to have a third layer and break that fourth wall like, you know, I did it in the book by addressing the reader and breaking the fourth wall. Mm-hmm. And then Fincher did it so well in the movies by, by monkeying with the conventions of film and breaking the fourth wall. And so we decided early on that we would do everything that could go wrong in comics, that we would stain the pages and we would, we would shift the register during fight scenes so that things didn't line up right. Right. And also, we would break the fourth wall by including uh, my writing workshop uh, and the people that I work with. Uh, so these were all ways of kind of taking it one step further than what the movie had done. Was, was That was something that you had wanted to do from the very beginning, though, with the comic? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, it's. I, I wonder if... It, I mean, from a craft point of view, is it easier to do that in comics to to bring yourself into it and to kind of explore the different layers of you know the author's reality and the character's reality and and whatnot? Because that a lot of comic writers play with that convention. I, I think you did a really great job with it. It um, rolls in the story really. I don't want to say naturally because it's not a, a natural convention, but it's it's very fluid and it seems uh, and it feels appropriate within the context of the story it makes a it makes sense whereas sometimes people drop themselves in as author and it's just kind of a forced convention Um, but it's something that people have tried to do off and on since you know gosh wally wood did it in ec in the 50s and steve gerber did it a lot in the 70s but it's uh this was handled in a really graceful way you know it it did seem really organic that's my favorite word that's exactly the word i wanted So it did seem organic because so much of my work is about uh, depicting social models. And Fight Club was such a success, I think, because men are presented with very few stories with new social models. And at the time of Fight Club, the only other uh, depiction was the Dead Poet Society, Mm -hmm. where young men who were dissatisfied went into a cave and read poetry to one another. So in a way, Fight Club was the same thing, but with violence instead of poetry and modeling as many different types of groups of you know forms of the community was really important to all my stories so having a writing workshop just seemed like another form of self-help support group therapy or, or fight club how did they feel about being entered into the world of the comic i only Included the writers who are published and more or less make their living as writers, mm-hmm. so they're all public figures. I, I didn't want to muddy anyone who wasn't a public figure, and uh, they were all very happy. Uh, Monica, uh, Chelsea, Lydia, Diana, Susie—they're uh, really happy to get the FaceTime. They're happy to be uh, in the product, and also uh, I, I use their language, so they're really tickled to hear their their own verbal texts. Depicted, right? 
were you happy with the end result? I mean, I know that's kind of a loaded question, but it's it's a very different medium than writing a novel. It's uh, it, much much more collaborative, and, and you had some great collaborators. But ultimately, is it what you saw in your brain, or did you even have a vision? Is did you just want to see it come together as a collaboration? What, what were your thoughts on working with other folks in that way? My script started out a lot more like a novel than like a comic script. Mm-hmm. And so I did get a lot of coaching from uh, from Matt Fraction, from uh, Scott Alley, and from you know, Chelsea Kane, who's got uh, Mockingbird coming out soon. Chelsea's doing a series on uh, for Mockingbird. And they all coached me a lot on so many different ways of, of showing rather than telling and keeping my dialogue to a minimum and... Uh, and the, the page turn reveal was a constant challenge for me. Sure. Having a, a setup and a payoff every two pages. Uh, and then working with Cameron about uh, what could or could not be depicted. I was always asking for things to be reflected in things. And he finally told me that that is very difficult to do in comics. So I got a couple, but that's it. Did you find when you saw pages start to come back? Because Cameron's a really great storyteller just in in the most classical sense um, when it comes to comics did you find that changed the way you were writing for him when you saw how much he could put into a panel it did you know and I was especially impressed with how he would use just a character's mouth to deliver a line in a floating panel within a much larger sort of scenic or splash panel or he would use just a character's eyes to depict emotion and so, as soon as I saw it, I identified his tricks, what he did so well, I was able to write to that. So it made subsequent, you know, it made issues maybe three through ten much better than issues one through one and two. He's he's also really good with body language and, and placement. Like, the way a figure sits in an environment and the way they're, they're, they're sitting is always really impressive to me. It's, it's a rare gift to be able to create that kind of... Uh, you know, graceful human expression on a page. In, in a way, I, I was attracted to his artwork for the opposite reason, because I knew I wanted to depict things that would be already so loaded with poignancy and heartbreak, like the children dying of progeria, that I wanted them to look a little cartoonish. Sure. Something that's always, you know, he's always criticized for looking a little cartoonish. I think that's what I like about that it. Kind of, exactly. It gives you wiggle room so you can be with tragic things and not be destroyed by them. Well, he can create these cartoonish characters that still exist in a real way on the page. I think he's very good with motion. And yeah. that carries so much. Yeah, motion and body language, everything that's not dialogue, he's very good at. He's a really interesting cartoonist, and he's done some really great projects in the past, including this one. I really thought his work on this was kind of a a career high. And interesting to see how he how he moved between the kind of fictional world and the the world of the authors and the the real world in quotes, too. There is a subtle shift in the way people are portrayed and the way people exist in the the space on the page. Was was that intentional? Was that something you all talked about? Oh, from the very beginning. Yeah. And especially with Dave Stewart, because we had so many shifts between uh, the waking world, the, the dream world, the fantasy world, the 
flashback world, the flash-forward catastrophe, or the flash-forward paradise world, the real writing world. We just had so many different worlds to intercut between that poor Dave Stewart had to come up with a, a coloring scheme that would make each world instantly identifiable. Sure. Yeah, and he did a knockout job. Well, that's redundant because he always does a great job, but it's it's a really beautifully packaged book. Has Was there any blowback to the, the content in the book at all? I mean, I, I know that there has, you know, in your career you've seen some a, a fair fair bit of controversy here and there, but what was the response in general to this book? You know, the we kind of got our biggest criticism right up front that... Uh, Retailers felt that it was something that would not sell because it, it it was based on something that they felt was too long in the culture, that the movie, the book were too long ago to rekindle any kind of interest. So a lot of retailers didn't order, or they ordered very low, uh, with very low expectations. And now I'm getting emails from these same retailers saying that they had to reorder 20 times. Uh, so there was a very low expectation up front. So, but there was nothing content related, I guess. No, knock on wood. I know Cameron was conflicted about some of the things I was asking him to depict. Um, but he was, uh, you know, he was really game. He went for it. I, I guess that's great. Nobody had any problems. <laughs> Actually, now that I've well, asked that know, question, I can't think of anything that would really drive people to get upset. And that's why I did really pull punches in this one. Because here's my... Uh, my first project and I wanted to really learn the ropes and I wanted to present something that was coherent and surprising and had high points but I didn't want to go completely over the top uh, you know enter screaming sure so that's something I'd like to do with the next series with the next series make it all of that really dark or really objectionable things um, with with your novels, what you, you've had a little bit of controversy. Uh, do you want to speak to that at all, or? There's been controversy, different types for almost every one of my books. And my theory is that is that you don't write to be liked. And I wish I'd made that up. Uh, one of my favorite writers, Joy Williams, always says you don't write to be liked. And my my sort of addendum is that you write to be remembered. Because if people remember this story, even if they didn't like it the first time through, their taste will change, and that people are constantly evolving. And that one of these days, the people and the culture in general is going to come around and like the thing that they still remember. Uh, there's so many books that I hated the first time through because I was forced to read them in high school. Uh, but they stayed in my mind, and I had a copy and years later, I went back, and when I reread them, I loved them. So, you know, the idea is that controversy is good because it helps keep that in people's minds and people's memory. One of the things that we wrestle with a lot here is that people, for the past couple of years, have a real knee-jerk reaction to content like this upsets me. It has to go away, and it's not necessarily on religious grounds or moral grounds just as much as I don't like to see things that have this depiction ever. They judge an entire piece of work by like one part of it um, and, and write it off. And I've found that often the stuff that really means a lot more to me as I grow older is stuff that as 
when I was younger or, you know, that I previously read that I had a, a reaction to, I was like, I can't do this. I can't, this is too much. That's the stuff that really I come back to often. Um, because I feel like sometimes you need to be challenged. But there's also a sense of, of uh, failure and that you haven't sort of risen to the consumption of this thing. And this thing might have something to it that you didn't appreciate. And you're never going to feel really complete with it until you do go back and completely consume this thing. And, and then, then you're able to make a full judgment of it. Yeah. And I'd much rather be confronted than read something that's 800 pages and be bored by it. I can't tell you how many books I've read that have gone on for so many pages and have ended very weakly. And these are hugely famous books, but they were so boring. And I felt at the end that I wasted a huge chunk of my life. Who were some of the authors that really, really got you fired up when you were a kid or who still get you fired up? You know, I grew up really loving Ellery Queen books. Oh, sure. Because in the early 70s, there was an Ellery Queen television series uh, that starred uh, uh, Jim Hutton, Timothy Hutton's father. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they gave you all the clues. So if you were paying attention and you were bright, you could figure it out by the end. And I found with the Ellery Queen books, they didn't cheat. They gave you all the clues. And you had a, you had a really good chance of figuring it out before you turned that last page. So the Ellery Queen books were, were what I read. I would say maybe hundreds of them. How however many were available, because uh, there were a lot. I discovered them. A bazillion. Yeah. Even before Ellery Queen, my favorite books were the Encyclopedia Brown books. Oh where sure. Had this kind of nerdy kid who solved crimes. Well, that's another one where all of the pieces are in place by the end. It's like a perfect little Chekhov's gun. You know, and I tell friends that. Uh, around plotting when I was growing up when my father got us for joint custody he would take us to whatever movie we wanted to see so as soon as we got home my mother would sit my siblings and I down and grill us about every plot point in the movie because she wanted to figure out if she should be angry about it (laughs) and so as children we had to memorize every scene, almost every shot in every movie we saw and because as we came home we had to make sense out of it and we had to reiterate the entire you know, story to my mother uh, and that really forced me to pay attention to plot, to really be a consumer analyst of plot. Sure. That's pretty funny. Did you, were, were you a genre fan in general with like mysteries and, and crime stuff or is that... Well I came of age during the great uh, sort of occult horror boom that was started with Rosemary's Baby. Mm-hmm. And though, so, you know, I grew up with the original uh, Night Stalker series with Darren McGavin. Oh my gosh. That inspired uh, Chris Carter's uh, X-Files. Yeah, that's my, maybe my top three favorite TV show, Kolchak. I'm, I'm always thrilled I have it in the box set now. And it's a little heartbreaking because when you watch one episode after another, you see that they had no budget for props whatsoever because the same painting will show up in office after office after office. So few props and pieces of furniture, and they're all reused so often. Kolchak was terrific, and uh, I think Richard Matheson wrote the first two TV movies. He wrote Night Stalker. I'm not sure if he wrote Night Strangler, uh, but the, a lot of 
pretty uh, substantial authors worked on that TV show at some point. I'm always thrilled when when I see that because at the same time the other show we I grew up with was The Waltons, mm-hmm. and that Earl Hamner, who played the kind of persona of John Boy Walton, grew up to write for uh, Twilight Zone and Outer Limits and write for those over the top sci-fi and horror shows. So it always thrilled me to think that John Boy had grown up to write the the stuff that I liked. <laughs> it really was. There, there was a good stretch of sci-fi TV there for, for a little bit with Night Gallery and some of the other stuff. Um, were you, you were always drawn to like horror and stuff between EC Comics and, and Twilight Zone and Kolchak. Is this a, an ongoing love in your life? I just loved it, maybe because my parents loved it. And also, it had that, that physical danger, that shock that engaged me much more readily than, than anything else. Sure. Some of the Kolchak episodes, I've just rewatched them all recently. There, there's one with a succubus on a college campus. And when she, dra- right. when she drains people, it's really gruesome, like the makeup effects of the husks that she leaves behind. And I just think that was on network television in prime time. The Rakshasa was so absolutely terrifying. Oh my gosh. With the swastikas. Yeah. Uh, the one that always terrified me most was the Spanish Moss Monster one. Mm-hmm. That one is a good episode, and the zombie episode's great, too. Oh, when the zombie opened his eyes as he's sewing his lips shut? Yeah. That was terrifying. Those stories, like the Night Gallery stories, were so well-plotted, and they were stories that we had to reiterate to my mother well, with Night Gallery, we weren't allowed to watch it, but she would stay up and watch it. And right. She would have to remember each of the four, three or four vignettes so that she could re- relate every setup and every payoff and every plot twist over breakfast the next morning. Oh, that's great. Now that you've spent some time in, in the comics world, are you? How, how much more have you got in the works? Are you planning on sticking around? You know, I would like to. There's a that sense of... Uh, not camaraderie is one word, but uh, but that sense of sort of teamwork and, and producing something as a team, ongoingly, as opposed to producing it by yourself with a novel and then editing it very briefly and then promoting it. Uh, there's a sense of uh, working together with comics that I just don't get it from novels, and uh, and I like that energy a lot better than, than the novel energy. It's hard to go back to long-form prose. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, you also had the good fortune of working with a really amazing team. You know, and that was all Scott. Scott knew who was who, and Scott knew who would be best, and you know, Scott put it all together and held meetings every week uh, while, I, while Cameron was living in Portland for a couple months. So we got together every week for a few hours and talked about you know, things before things were anything. Well, thank you so much. I think we hit just about everything. I can we can keep it short and sweet. Thank you so much for talking to me. I really enjoyed it, and I appreciate uh, you taking the time. Oh, not a problem. Awesome. Thank you, Chuck. Take care.
There wasn't a star in the sky. Still I saw stars. I'd like to thank Chuck again for taking some time to talk to us, and I want to encourage everyone listening to check out Fight Club 2, which should be available from Dark Horse Comics as a complete collected graphic novel at this point. It's really worth your time with some beautiful artwork by Cameron Stewart and beautiful covers by David Mack. The Comic Book Legal Defense Fund podcast, as I said, is part of our ongoing education program. If you'd like to learn more about the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund or donate, please visit cbldf.org. Our work is made possible by listeners like yourself. All of our program and education work is made possible with a grant by the Gaiman Foundation, and we'd like to thank them. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please rate us on iTunes, leave a review, tell your friends about us, subscribe, do whatever you can to stay in touch. You can always write us an email at info at cbldf.org or follow us on Twitter at cbldf. Thanks for listening.